0: Thank you very much. Um, I have, I've got to an age when I have to decide whether to see the script or, or see the audience properly, sort of thing. So if I, if I appear to be squinting, don't take it personally. Um, OK. Um, most of... You've seen the title, Transnational Lives, Spain and Europe's Wars of Social Change. Most of this was written, configured in, in some wise before the events of last Thursday... But, of course, it's, res- it's redolent of all of them. Um, when I first publicly pitched the, the proposal for, for, for this book, um, Lies at the Limit, I used the analogy of a message in a bottle from one dark time to another. <laughs> well, so much more clearly now, unfortunately. Anyway. Um, OK, so I will um, start on are awesome... Is it OK? I, do, sorry, of, yeah, do it back yeah, No, no there, there, okay. OK, for, right, OK, so... Um, on New Year's Day 1948, from amid the ruins of Berlin's Pergamon Museum, where he had once worked and was now camped out with his new wife and baby, Rudolf Michaelis, the Leipzig born, a Leipzig-born anarchist, autodidact archaeological restorer, and former international brigader, wrote to refugee friends in New York of his fragile hopes. A picture of Rudolf in 1935 in Spain. Um, he had so many prisons behind him, from Nazi to Francoist, from whose jails he had recently returned. As Rudolf wrote in 1948, another soldier from the wars in Spain was setting out from New York. Bill Alto, a Finnish-American poet who had fought as a guerrilla soldier in the Spanish Republican Army, was headed for Italy, buoyed up by his friendship with a small group of poets gathered around WH Auden. There, Alto hoped to find in newly liberated post-war Europe an air more breathable than the rarefied and corrosive kind he was weary of at home in the United States. (laughs) Public fear in emergent Cold War America was already claiming other victims from Spain too, most famously the exiled Spanish composer turned military commander Gustavo Duran, in whose downfall both new world conservatism and old world fascism took apart. Durand's eclipse played out as the victorious allies drew a veil over the immediate past, closing down the process of denazification in Germany. In, Fra- in, in, Spain, sorry, in Spain, the Franco dictatorship drew strength from that and turned its gaze to the future. Contemplating the consequences was another poet, Lucia Sanchez Sarnil who had played a leading role in Republican wartime resistance. Returning from Nazi-occupied France to live clandestinely in Spain as the only alternative to prison or death, she now faced years as an undocumented and irregular civilian in a country still ruled under a state of war, as Spain was until 1948. On the other side of the world, the Austrian-Polish-Jewish photographer Margaret Michaelis also sought to stay below the radar of the authorities. With her then partner, Rudolf, she had fled a Nazi jail in Berlin for Barcelona in December 1933. During Spain's civil war, she'd photographed Lucia, when both had accompanied the legendary anarchist uh, leader, Emma Goldman, who's in the middle of the picture there, um, when she visited Republican Spain in the, late, uh, the autumn of 1936. Post-Spain, Margaret's odyssey took her across Europe through the Austria of Anschluss and to France in, pla- in search of a place of safety. In the end, she escaped from the old continent, barely with her life. With her parents dead in the Holocaust and Rudolf Michaelis far away, she saw stretching ahead of her vistas of a new exile. Loaded with a refugee's heavy task of surmounting suspicion and restriction, of rebuilding professional and personal life on a new continent, but this time in the full knowledge of the loneliness history would impose. And that's a very odd picture, which will come of hers, which we'll come back to a bit later on. Um, a self-portrait, Parramatta River, Sydney, June 1948. Anyway, here this evening, I'm going to talk about these lives, which, as Paul said, the coming together in a, in, a, in a, a new book. And I'm going to talk about them in a way which I I trust, I hope, will illuminate the larger picture of their era and of the stakes of that era. And I'll do so by or the process of doing this is by highlighting the linkages between the politics and the personal lives, which is not to depoliticize the era. The era. In doing this, I'm not intending some kind of facile or reductive humanism, but what I'm trying to do is to reframe via what you might call thick description to reconstitute the textural complexity of these times of this interwar period and the the very three-dimensional nature of the politics of the interwar period which has somehow been reduced across time to some kind of two-dimensional cardboard cut-out ideology i think that's true of the 1930s in general that kind of reductiveness but it's certainly true of the spanish civil war in particular which is in part not entirely but certainly in very great part the retrospective ideological effect of the cold war which just never seems to end in terms of the Spanish Civil War. Um, I've just recently read the otherwise excellent T.J. Clark piece in recent <coughs> London Review of Books, Picasso and the Fall of Europe. Yet again, he describes the Spanish Civil War as, in essence, a clash of totalitarianisms. Um, so again, that, that, not to berate Clark that much, but that can stand as an example of the continuing misrecognition of the events in Spain. And I use misrecognition in a sociological sense, not in a Lacanian sort of uh, psychological one. But I think misrecognition is quite a useful word to explain uh, the retrospective functioning, to this day, um, of Cold War ideology. In methodological terms, what historians can do in terms of the kind of work I'm doing in this book is, rather than applying a particular corpus of theory, per se, Instead of doing that, what we do as historians is really to juxtapose and to explore comparatively lives, which, as a historian, I have to say, I think remain much more complex than any theory. Um, And it is, in turn, the juxtaposition and the comparative analysis of the lives which allows us, in a theoretically informed way, of course, (laughs) but it allows us to understand history and how historical events intersect with real lives, and it is in the resulting collision that drives forward forms of social and psychological change, which produces new subjects. It's the new, and in a period like the 1930s, um, and, maybe, and others too, but certainly the interwar, this collision is producing new subjects in the damage done. The, the new subjects come out of the damage done, and any history in dark or difficult times, it will, it will happen like that. Right, OK. Sorry about this one, but it was, I, I had to find something so you could see children of the city. So anyway, um, the dark 20th century, which forever shaped these five lives, erupted with a chain of crises and conflicts which exploded all over Europe in the, in the wake of the Great War of 1914-18, these crises, like the war itself, were the products of tensions arising from changes that would drive and define the century. The spread of... Ind- every, I mean, I'll just rehearse this very fast. I'm sure everybody's very well aware of this context. The spread of industry, the growth of cosmopolitan urban centres across the continent with increasingly diverse populations. After the war, people remained on the... After the war of 1418, people remained on the move physically, once the, pro- the, the original process had been triggered by military mobilisation and home front war work. Although, in a sense, many of the forms of, of mobilisation we're talking about actually predate military mobilisation of 1914... And along with their bodies, so people's ideas and their very sense of themselves were on the move with them. Many were asking challenging questions of the beckoning future. What would the new Europe look like? In whose image would it be made? Who should now speak through politics? What privileges should inherited wealth still be permitted to command? What counted for more? New political rights of recently enfranchised populations or older notions of duty and service? The war of 1418 had fatally wounded Europe's old order of empire, elite rule, rigid social hierarchy and deference, while not entirely killing them off. For that reason, the interwar decades of the 1920s and 30s were a kind of stalemate, an uncertain terrain where individuals and groups saw everything as still in play, and most crucially, still to play for And this was particularly true for all those who, like the five people I'm talking about, saw the possibility of social and political change, of more fluid and equal social relationships, as a promise rather than as a threat. This kind of progressive political vision tended to emanate from burgeoning cities, and it was very obvious, where creative practitioners took a lead in seeking a new union of art and life to repair social relations and to heal the broken world. Each of the five I'm talking about in some way belongs to, the, to that idea of the city. They came in diverse ways to speak for it, just as its possibilities spoke to their imaginations and aspirations for a different future. Of course, at that time, as, as just earlier, capital cities were also being projected as epitomes of the new expanding national idea, the epitome of national energy, inventiveness, genius, It's the national future. But that's something else it sometimes overlaps with what I'm talking about, but it doesn't explain the whys or whereofs of the psychological investment made by many political progressives for whom the city becomes this site of permanent crucible, permanent option for transformation that provided a release from the old and the sclerotic. Now, while... All, all of the five lives I'm talking about were, at some stage of their lives, creative artists. Um, their creative vision was integrally bound up with a set of practical skills, a concern for immediate <coughs> application, for immediate curing. And their cycle psycho- in each of the five cases, their psychological relationship with needful change goes very deep. I'd hazard to say deeper than it did with many more famous artists. Um, Moreover, what holds them together as a group of five, in spite of their their eclecticism in many other ways, was their high, perhaps even preternatural ability, capacity to face existential change. Theirs was a notable transformational ability, whatever its consequences for themselves, for their selfhood, for their lives as individuals. So these aren't, what I'm about to talk about, are not just transnational lives in the fact that they crossed or lived across physical national borders, or because they became exiled one or many times, they were quite simply trans lives in everything, in the way they radically and repeatedly, sometimes even very recklessly, met external violent circumstance by radically refashioning themselves by a sheer effort of will. OK, um, sorry, the, the print is probably a bit small there. I, I mean, I'll explain about the picture, but radical instability of life, um, the defining, I suppose, category of, of the times. This is a picture which uh, Margaret Michaelis took in Berlin in 1932. It very, was very common, these uh, job adverts, <coughs> Not roof, call for help, emergency, a DIY notice posted by someone who'd been unemployed for three years and who was desperate for work, the city, these, bol- these um, carousels were, were plastered with them. From the start, all of the five, with the exception of Gustavo Duran, I guess, felt the sharp effects of the World Economic Depression of 1929, which limited the professional hopes of even the relevant, relevant, relatively affluent amongst them, as they ma- migrated between cities, or in some cases countries, in search of work whether or not this work related to their talents and aptitudes. And as each struggled to deal with this radical instability of daily life and with the intense personal anxieties it produced, the wider economic crisis was also sharpening political conflict across Europe over the shape of 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 the continent's future. The result was a fertile territory for the ratcheting up of ethnic, racial and other segregationist Frequently murderous national myths, spurious explanations all of the moment, the proclaim, proclaim themselves as, as the answer to individual uncertainty and to the maelstrom of accelerating change. Plus, ça change. Anyway, the results of these struggles across Europe would be a series of wars of social change in the years between 1936 and 1948. I mean, you can, the dates are very rough, but a lot more than the war years. All of these were dense, fraught confrontations over identities and values, which, after, the first of, after September 1939, escalated under the impact of Nazi occupation or annexation. But the very first of these culture wars, I think, or at least the very first to erupt in arms, was in Spain in July 1936, where an indigenous, colonial military elite, in part representing the social and political values of pre-1914 hierarchical Europe, launched a coup... Against a democratizing civilian society that was designed to halt social change in its tracks. But of course, as everybody in this room knows, that coup only succeeded because the conspirators secured almost immediate military backing from Germany, from Nazi Germany and Fascist Italy. Um, I mean, it's a bit of a collage, really. I mean, basically, I'm going to talk about this idea of the kind of the magic territory of Spain, but Spain, this is Minna Arts, was a, an activist from the, from the German Democratic Republic. Spain was the green time when we were all whole and together. There are many variants of those same sentiments. Um, but the, the other pictures are... Well, the, the top picture is a picture of... of, of it's a, basically a picture of refugee children in a, in a colonia infantile taken by Margaret Michaelis in uh, her work for the... Catalan um, for the government, for the Generalitat uh, in 1937 late 36, beginning of 1937, but it's really there as an image of co-education, I sometimes think you know, Spain went to war over co-education, but I mean in a sense that's an exaggeration, but what I'm getting at is the fact that the culture war dimension is crucial to understanding the ratcheting up of tension in in spring 1936, and that picture at the bottom is a picture, well it's a picture of um, Carmen... Parga and Manuel Taguena-La Corte, uh, who were leading sort of Republican youth activists on the so-called Madrid beach in 1930, but it's just, it's 1930, look at those bathing suits, you know, how things went backwards. It's a kind of, you could write a cultural history of loss through that picture. Um, I mean, Taguena was a, was a Republican um, activist, as I've said, but by 25, he was the leader of a major military unit on the Ebro front, um, So, you know, again, it's a a picture of what happened to, you know, the the, the way in which youth, a generation of young people also came to the fore. Anyway, the point being that the Republic in Spain, as encapsulated in this kind of mass photograph by Margaret Michaelis, um, faced a dual assault from outside, from the old, from the um, European fascism and from the old order within. And it was that experience or the witness of curtailed horizons of radical uncertainty and sometimes of acute and personal danger which focused and intensified the perspectives of many political progressives across Europe and beyond, redoubling their sense of the urgency of the moment. So from all over Europe, Yugoslavia, France, Finland, Italy, Poland, Hungary, wherever you look, suddenly Europe is one place, one moment, one time fighters, writers, others who see Spain as the place for them to stand, and the young republic as the new city, right, the new city, the possibility of a a new, more open, equal society and culture. Um, All of the five in their very diverse politics and provenance felt that broad call to arms, to defence as their own. Bill Alto sailed from a New York riven by the Great Depression uh, and trailing memories of an ear- he came finnish American trailing memories of an earlier civil war in Finland, but also I think as much of that because he was second generation he did not come from Finland, his mother did uh, he also I think came trailing memories, much more direct memories of his mother being ground down by the hard edged hierarchies uh, of a real city as a of New York in choose a domest- in domestic service as opposed to the kind of ideal city of the of, of the intellectuals. Um, the other four, Bill came from outside, the, the other four were already in Spain, Margaret and Rudolf Michaelis that arrived in 1933 as racial and political refugees from Nazi Germany, freshly escaped from the Reich's security law, from detention under the Reich's security laws. Only Margaret is Jewish, Rudolf Michaelis is not Jewish. Already inside Spain, there is Lucia Sánchez Sarnil and Gustavo Duran, who came from very different social backgrounds, poor and wealthy respectively, but both had a very deep-etched etched, deep etched personal commitment to change. Just as an example of this, Duran's psychological, what you might call his psychological conscription, runs back to an event in 1918, when his conservative pro-German father had his, his wife, Petra, who was Gustavo's mother, committed to a public asylum, Fiempar near Madrid, in order to install his lover or mistress and their daughter in the family home. Gustavo was 12, and he was never reconciled to that offence. And one can sense its growing impact, especially in in a key letter which he writes, the adult... Gustavo writes to his siblings after visiting Petra in Tiempozuelos in December 1934, a fairly neuralgic moment otherwise politically in Spain. Um, in recounting that story, I'm not saying that the story of his mother is the truth of his radicalism. Of course it's not. But it is an important, there are important personal components of which that is one, without which we can't fully understand or appreciate the external chronology of his politicization. For example, the things that are more well known, his early 1930s trip to the the deep rural South to the impoverished South with the filmmaker Luis Buñuel and others who was part of which was part of the preparation for making the um, film Tierras sin Pan uh, Land without Bread in 19- appeared in 1932-33 and later uh, a kind of ac- accumulating participation in. Um, political action in solidarity strikes in the campaigning in the run up to the popular front elections of February 1936 which sought to re-establish the reforming impetus of the initial republican government of 31 to 33 so I'm not saying that the personal is the, that would be crass, is the truth of his his politicisation but what I am saying is it's only by thick description, it's only by understanding that politics was about people's three dimensional real lives and the way they made narrative that made sense. It's only by doing that that we can somehow get around this um, increasingly two-dimensional appreciation of politics and ideology that seems ever more to envelop the interwar period in the way it's written up and talked about. Um, anyway, so of the f- of the five lives, four of the people I'm talking about became political soldiers of the republic, making irrevocable. Er- irrever- irrevocable, life-changing decisions to defend it. Lucia Sanchez Sarnil took on major political responsibilities on the home front, both as a prominent journalist and writer, as a political leader. She was perhaps, I think, the most important leader of Mujeres Libres, the anarchist libertarian organisation. Um, and in later years, she was also a humanitarian aid convener, an activist for SIA, for the Solidaridad Internacional Antifascista, which was the anarchist equivalent of Socorro Rojo Internacional, International Red Aid. Um, so that's what she did. Duran, Rudolf Michaelis, and Bill Alto fought for the Republican arms, all of them, but in different ways. Bill, very unusually, uh, for an international brigade, was a guerrilla soldier in the 14th Corps, uh, which was, came together by 1937 as the, as the guerrilla corps of the, popular, of the Republican army. Um, Rudolf Michaelis fought originally in the anarchist militia, and then later in the regular Spanish Republican army, while Gustavo Duran left behind his talented golden boy, semi-dilutante, passed to become a leading military commander—a transformation which is, I think, pretty much unique in the history of a war, maybe of any, certainly of that war, of the Spanish Civil War, perhaps of any war. Um, Margaret Michaelis, a gifted photographer, more than gifted, really, a world-class photographer, has left us a unique record of. I mean before she was in Spain remember from 1933 uh, she left she's left us a unique record of urban and social change in the pre-war Spanish Republic particularly she photographed Barcelona um, popular life street life urban transformation the, this is the new Barcelona exhibition, July 1934, in the basement of the Plaza de Catalunya, which she she worked for the Gat-Pak, and That's a whole other story about how she came to be, effectively, the photographer of pack, the Catalan branch, anyway. Um, but uh, in any case, that's what she did. And then, as the war struck, she became a war photographer, not in the tradition of... of of epic, heroic war photography, such as Robert Capa or Gerda Taro. Her wartime work, which, as I've said, included work for the Generalitat behind the lines, was more in the vein of... Cati Horner, I suppose, the Hungarian photographer. Some of Shim's work, which we saw at the beginning, the Brandenburg Gate in in Berlin, (coughs) really of civilians and of the cost of... Sorry, the cost... Sorry, we'll come back to that. I'm going too fast the cost of war, I mean, she she, she did, um, sorry, the reason I'm slightly kind of, um, I've got the picture of the next slide as well, so it's kind of, it's kind of, kind of, conf- I've got as a bipolar sort of thing, but in any case, um, so she took pictures of um, the social, tran- these are the, the famous wall newspapers from, mainly from slightly later in the war, um, but she also took pictures, a lot of pictures of the, the effects of war on on non-combatants, these are children being educated, women queuing for cooking purposes in Montjuïc Stadium in, in Barcelona. Old people, lots and lots of, of, of refugees were housed um, in, in the Montjuïc Stadium um, in 1937. Um, that of course, as much as anything else is that she did work for the the, the pictures earlier the, the the Colonios infantiles, the pictures she did work for the the health commissariat for, for the generalitat she she took pictures of um, of medical services and and so on and so forth so she this this was war of course as much as the front line, but it wasn 't that heroic in, 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 in sort of um, epic war photography of of, of Kappa or Gerda Taro. Um, I think Margaret Michaelis understood earlier than the other four and earlier than a lot of people that the Republic couldn't win against the coalition of enemies that were ranged against it internationally and nationally, which of course, as Paul has pointed out, included very importantly the British establishment and its foreign policy. Um, The intensity of what she felt on top of an already acute sense of the precarity of her life caused a mental collapse. And she left Spain in 1937 to make a fruitless search across Europe for a place of safety, but ending back in her parent's house in Poland in 1938, after Anschluss, um, where she made a photographic document of a world that was about to be annihilated, along with her parents. Um, The pictures above them are popular street pictures of markets in Krakow and Katowice, which she took at this time, and the, the, the people below are her parents, Um, Her father, uh, they were both deported, her father didn't make it to Auschwitz, her mother did, neither of them obviously came out of the war alive. Um, These pictures, in a sense, uh, there are many of them, which hopefully one is going to be able to get to, I think, a European exhibition of, um, are basically very like the ones that Roman Vishniak is, is very, very famous for. Um, I'm, not, I'm not about to compare, they're different, although they're very reminiscent of it. But I mean, they are a, a, a huge, they've been shown in Australia, but um, uh, never, uh, I think, elsewhere. Anyway, um, nevertheless, and for all her earlier physical exit from Spain, I think her commitment, no less than that, that of the other four, encapsulates what we might see as the psychological conscription wrought by modern wars. Uh, and which, in the case of these five, in terms of Spain, would last a lifetime. What Mina Art said in the earlier slide, this was a green time when we were all whole and together. The defence of the Republic was a wager, intensely personal and emotional, as well as a political one, which they all made and which they all lost in the war before the lights went out in Europe. Spain haunted them all because it was a site of possibility, a, site, a place of becoming. And I want to insist on that, going back to what I said at the beginning. It's, of course, it's true that the magic of the territory increased in retrospect after 1945 in the full modernist knowledge of all the ruined gardens. Spain was, as Gustav Regler said in the Owl of Minerva in 1959, the new geography... Was the, sorry, let me recap. Spain was where the light shone and the new geography began. That's Gustave Regler, 1959. Of course, that, I, that sense of the mythicness and the magic, it increased as, as time went on. Uh, but even if we leave aside the left's mythology born of nostalgia, let's not throw out the historical baby with the bathwater. This sense of Republican Spain as a site of transformation is not a retros- is not only or merely a retrospective construction. It was an entirely contemporary interpretation uh, of, of contemporary, subjective of course but it was a contemporary interpretation and to ignore that that was the case um, is really to allow the, again to allow the story to harp on this but to allow the long afterlife of the Cold War to erase history and in so doing to perpetuate what you might call the unrepresentability of many millions of lives not, not to mention erasing or at least binarizing, which comes to the same thing in my book the more complicated political projects which the Republic contained. Um, And I think here the transnational resonances are everywhere. You only have to think about Ernst Toller, right? The expressionist poet and playwright who was once in the 1920s perhaps... One of the most famous, one of the most two most famous, I would say, political activists in Europe. I mean, how have times changed? The world, maybe, um, who was of course stripped of his nationality by the Nazis. And this is a this is actually from the a, a newspaper article from 20 or 30 years ago. But what it, it it was a little series that used to be run from the Guardian called "On This Day," and it's about um, it's basically extracts from a wonderful book by Robert Payne called "Chunking Express," in which Robert Payne was a journalist who also wrote a, a really good, I think, largely forgotten book now about Spain. Um, but he he was in the, in Chungking Express, which is a kind of diary. He um, he's he's basically writing about Toller, um, and we have Toller's. We have the also in. Um, I mean, the reason I'm raising the point of of, of Toller is this idea of the tra- you know, the transnational resonances. We have. In another book, Alva Bessie, the um, first historian of the uh, North American Abraham Lincoln Brigades, in his his book Men in Battle in 1939, published in 1939, hence my point about the contemporaneity of this, uh, you have his his haunting image of Toller. He visits the Ebro battlefield in 1938 and he's standing out there in the blaze of fire and they're all shouting to him to get down, get down. But he's indifferent to it all and he stands out there and, of course, for him, in his mind, he's surrounded not by, um, not by the Lincoln Brigaders, but by the Bavarian ghosts of Weimar in 1919, right? Uh, Toller had been a dead man walking, and it was the Spanish Republic which makes him make a, super, a really superhuman effort in 1938 to move governmental humanitarian aid for Republicans, particularly Roosevelt, because he was, by this point, Toller was in, in, in the U.S., and you can see there's an amazing collection of Toller's letters. It's heartbreaking. There's an amazing collection of his letters in the Spanish Refugee Relief Collection at Columbia University. Uh, and when, of course, all of this fails and he, he spends all his, o- his own money in, in, in this relief operation, he commits suicide in New York in his hotel room on the 22nd of May 1939. Of course, Juan Negrín, the last Prime Minister of the Spanish Republic, is one of the people who give a funeral oration at his um, commemorative service. Um, I mean, there were other reasons for the death, but Spain, Spain is the kind of bridge too far, right? You know, he comes back from where it's not possible to come back from emotionally, and then Spain is, is a defeat. So, so the transnationalism is, is, is absolutely everywhere, really. And, of course, Toller's death in turn triggers the final decline um, of that other great author of The Civil Wars of Europe's Dark Mid-20th Century, jo- Joseph Roth, who drinks himself to death in Paris after hearing of Toller's suicide. Um, so, what follows that? States of emergency. The wars after the war, which are the, some pis- pictures of uh, prison camps. Um, well, that's the uh, gore, I mean, just it's just a commemorative plaque, a gore, uh, uh, talking about who was interned, and then a, a picture of uh, the camp at Le Vernet where Arnold, Ar- Arthur Koestler was interned, in his case, fortunately, for only a, a number of months, uh, 1939 to 1940. Le Vernay is about 30 kilometers from Toulouse. So what happens to all of these five people? Bill was evacuated from Spain with the rest of the Lincolns, uh, that is to say the the, the US International brigaders At the end of 1938, he reached New York City in January 1939 as the implosion of Catalonia began and with it the mass movement of refugees to the French French frontier. Among the soldiers and civilians crossing the border were both Rudolf Michaelis and Lucia Sanchez-Sardinil. Both spent time interned in the French camps, Lucia in Argelès. Both of them still sought collective solutions where they could. Luthier informally collaborated with Quaker relief workers in, in various places in, the, in, 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 in France. But both Luthea and Rudolf were up against what Rudolf, Rudolf Michaelis articulated with his habitual and fearless directness. He wrote from France to those already in exile, and he said that the solutions today are not collective but individual. And it, it was as if, in his case, to resist that realisation or that accept, to resist accepting that, that he put off and put off what were, I think would for him have been a viable route out to South America. Instead, he sets out once again for Spain, where he's captured at the frontier in the winter of 1939 and subjected to a Consejo de Guerra, a military trial, and because he's able, to some extent, to dissemble his own war record, he's incarcerated rather than executed. And he spends five years in a Francoist jail in Barcelona, where he's tortured, and then a further 18 months in Libertad Condicional, sort of uh, uh, house arrest, No, house arrest, sort of being for in, in Libertad Condicional in Madrid, where he is basically forced to report to the police every so often and stay um, where he's been placed. Um, that, of course, all saved his life. <laughs> I mean, there was no deportation to Germany. Uh, from what I can see, it was sheer accident. They just kind of tried and didn't try hard enough, and he just stayed where he was, and he stayed alive. Meanwhile, out of these and clashes in villages and towns across the, the continent, um, out of the war of 39 to 45, a new Europe would be emerging at the cost of... An off-battlefield local violence so barbaric and extreme, I think that's important to say, the off-battlefield local violence so barbaric and extreme that it remains even today unimaginable within mainstream Western consciousness. The imperative of European reconstruction in the immediate post-war would demand that that disturbing truth about who had done what and to whom was screened behind pragma- pragmatically useful homogenizing myths of national and popular resistance, but the fear-driven schemas of safely homogenous insider communities versus the threats of outsiders—all of that lived on, lives on, at the heart of the post-war political systems and societies, East and West. <clears throat> no, we're not there we The myths upon which Europe's post-war truce was constructed were then integral to why so many of these lives and and many millions of other lives which were physically, physically salvaged from the conflagration could not be lived in peace. In part because the mainstream narratives of the war did not express or misrepresented what they had endured or what they had aspired to. In the same way, the stories told about the ensuing peace Eclipse them as individual subjects who had been formed in the maelstrom of events and experiences over which a veil of social and political taboo was rapidly drawn. And so it was for these five lives. All suffered the war's long aftermath as a, a form of personal eclipse, personal existential eclipse, in which these myth fueled distortions of public historical memory played a very strong part, And that was true whether it was under dictatorships or democracy in East or Western Europe or indeed throughout the political West more broadly construed. Their lives had been salvaged and all would achieve greater or lesser degrees of worldly success. But irrespective of that, they would continue to feel the aftershocks of the real historical past, which could not be publicly represented in their post-war present. So they were kind of ghosts, I suppose. Um, because it wasn't the post-war for them. It wasn't the post-war. Rudolf, so to to put some more concreteness to to those comments, Rudolf Michaelis returned to Berlin in 1946. He was repatriated by the Allies above a, 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 a North American warship, which didn't do him any good later on, but anyway... And there he fought a, lo- a, 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 well, a relatively long and losing battle to keep alive the direct democracy and the multiplicity of anti-fascist traditions, which he saw as the key legacy of the left in the, in the wars of 1936 to 48. For a time, he had a relative power. He was made administrative director of the State Museum. Not bad for a boiler stoker in, th- in the late 1920s. I mean, that's kind of, you know, that's quite, a, quite a move. And in his his inaugural address to museum staff in December 1946, he refers to the democratic currents blowing towards us from both east and west. But, of course, these political divisions were already crystallising within the city, within Berlin, and within the museum itself. And Rudolf Michaelis found himself constrained more and more by both municipal and museum authorities. He was removed from the directorship in May 1949, the month after the formation of the DDR. Uh, the, G- the GDR the, D- the German Democratic Republic and he was thereafter progressively marginalized each time to a lesser job he was just too politically heterodox he was never on Rudolf was never on message in his life and the, the CNT didn't much like him either um, in the end he was permitted to be a primary school teacher which was considered safe right. And although Rudolf was never imprisoned as some other GDR dissident Spanienkampfer were, the Spanienkampfer, the Spanish fighters, were the first-hour anti-fascists, the symbolic and discursive heroes of the East German order. He he was, even though he was not imprisoned, Rudolf was written out because his life story could not be articulated. It was unspeakable. It was literally unrepresentable within either the orthodox state Spanienkampfer script Or the Western Cold War narrative of the Eastern victims of Stalinism. His story kind of overflowed in every these these scripts in in every direction. And in what was an ostensibly different context altogether, the same was really true for Gustavo Duran in the United States. In terms of making a mark on the external world, Duran was without any doubt the most successful of all the five lives. He'd had a pretty much miraculous escape from Spain, from Valencia at the 11th and three-quarter hour in late late March 1939. And the knowledge of that escape shines like a collective solace in all of the... So many letters which he received, first in London and then in New York, from wartime comrades who were still immured in the European camps um, that he'd got out, at least he'd got out. But in the world of late 1940s America, well let me point that out, well, well, well before fully-fledged McCarthyism, already by 1942. um, The the political world that Republican Spain had been was already unrepresentable, incomprehensible, lost in translation. In civil wartime Spain, communism had been a mass social movement and an extremely heterodox one, perhaps more than in any other place or time historically. But in the North American incipient Cold War era, communism could only mean one thing, Pure ideology and a subversive commitment to that ideology at that. So Gustavo Duran could tell the truth about everything he did in the war in Spain, but he could not admit or explain his complicated, because it was very complicated, relationship with the Spanish communist movement. That would have sunk him. He simply had to parry and dissemble. That he did so eventually successfully, seeing off McCarthyite allegations, which were also tied up with Franco, the Franco regime's simultaneous use, opportunist use of them. That was a victory of a kind, but it was one which was achieved at a great personal cost, and not less a price, too, was exacted by Gustavo's determination that on leaving Spain he would leave behind any reckoning with private loss that he would maintain an absolute silence on any and all of the huge personal and emotional losses which had been sustained in that war. On all of his... It was a kind of violence against his former selves, including the one that had lost Lorca, whose lover he had been in the years of the the pre-war years of the Residencia de Estudiantes. And in the same period and city, New York, as Duran, but in other regards, worlds away... Bill Alto, too, was fighting battles against proto-McCarthyite exclusion. The political reckoning in the end for Bill would be much more severe. Hugely compounded, it has to be said, by a form of personal reckoning which he, in a sense, imposed upon himself, um, which was again intimately bound up with his experience of the war in Spain. And this was his decision in 1940 (coughs) to be quite open, including with his Lincoln Battalion comrades, about his sexuality. This is three decades ahead of Stonewall, and when same-sex preferences were still illegal. He said, the war is breaking us, but it's also remaking us. He was refusing to play by the old rules, not here only of politics, as conventionally defined, but also of social convention, that is to say politics more broadly defined. Bill Alto crossed the lines. He crossed another border, if you like, and one which would have many future consequences for him, both politically and personally. In the end, it would cause him to leave behind the war hero persona. He was the most kind of commended single Lincoln Brigadier on leaving Spain. He left behind that war hero persona, the political soldier, the discipline of the Communist Party, and he went in search of something new, a new critical purchase on the world, a life of the mind. He became a historian as well as a poet And in the lines of another poet, his friend W.H. Auden, I mentioned at the beginning, there runs an incandescent trace of Bill's Bill's predicament. This is a quote from Auden. Nothing is free. Whatever you charge shall be paid, that these days of exotic splendour may stand out in each lifetime like marble mileposts mileposts in an alluvial land. That was a, a, it's a poem called Ischia, which was in a collection called Nons, which was written at the end of the 1940s, published, I think, in 1950. Um, but even if we leave aside completely questions of sexuality, all of these five lives, along with millions of others, also cross the lines in the sense that modern war has been, much more frequently, I think, than we're comfortable admitting, a condition which has no real after, and from which many people do not truly come back because whoever returns is already somebody else. The intensity of Europe's wars of the 1930s and 40s frequently seared those who lived through them, whether that was in combat or not. So the experience remained more real than anything that occurred afterwards. Gustavo Duran served in the UN for many years, and he was in the Congo in 1960 as effective head of the UN Civilian and Refugees Operation Risking his life many times over in the vortex of decolonisation. I was really hurry. Um, but he always, always in his letters, is remembering his one real war long gone by. And Bill Alto, too, angrily locked in the intensity of his partisan war, but unable, quite literally, to go back, not only to Spain, but also to Europe because the US authorities confiscated his passport in 1952, and he spent the last years of his short life in legal battles to reclaim them. Uh, he died on the 11th of June, 1958, aged 42, five days before the US Supreme Court ruled as unconstitutional the authorities' withholding of passports in return for information. Or we could consider Margaret Michaelis' long, intermittent periods of dysphoria, disconnectedness and deep sadness throughout her life. Margaret, who'd got out of Poland... In 19, December 1938, on a, to the UK, to London, on a UK, um, on a domestic servants visa. That was, you know, there were, it was not uncommon. And when it what, actually it was, not many people got out, but that way of getting out was not uncommon. If you had contacts, if you had connections, um, and from there, thence to Sydney, Australia, in, in July 1939. And then you see her life developing as she has to... I'm talking about these narratives and the unrepresentability of these lives. She has to fit her really unrepresentable life story to fit the trauma codes and gender narratives of the male medical establishment of 1950s Australia as she has to get hold of the medical reports which will allow her to get... Compensation from the from the then West German government, so she has to kind of bend her whole life to you know it's it's because she's divorced, it's because you know she's Jewish and she's religious, but she never was, you know. I mean, all of these things that she has to shape this narrative. Um, So in 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 the knowledge of that, in some ways, again, this um, self-portrait is um, has to be read, I think, as ironic as well as it's many other things which I haven't got time to go into, but it's I think also um, a nod at that. In the end, in the the late 1960s, Margaret would go off in search of Rudolf in Berlin. They hadn't seen each other since they divorced in Barcelona in 1937. Um, Late 1960s, she goes in search of him in Berlin... And together they excavate their common past, quite literally by digging up the artefacts and, of course, the many photographs that they buried in their garden in Wilmersdorf, Berlin, the flat garden, before their departure in 1933. And in part, this was a, a process of jolting Rudolf's memory. He has what he calls memory holes, physiological gaps inflicted by the effects of the torture, the years of torture in Spain. Radical hope dispatches from the wars. Um, I couldn't think of what picture to put there. I hope people don't think it's too um, grim. But it, it's uh, Lucio sanchez Sardinil's Grave in Valencia on which is written, um, But is it true that hope is dead? Um, which is a line from one of her poems. Lucio is fiercely anti-nostalgic always. Um, immensely practical woman. Um, the excavation that the Michaelisist did um, was, of course, like all excavations, a work of reconstruction, of making something new. Um, and in, 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 in that sense, it's akin in many ways to the kind of historical research work that I've undertaken for this book, which has involved lateral thinking, detective, in some cases almost hiring private detectives, <laughs> um, technique sources... It's, it's, it's way beyond the standard work of recognised archival collections because these people are diasporic lives. They have, don't have archives. They have The material is all over the place and often um, fragmented. Um, anyway, there is no, I think, probably no real time to consider in any great depth here the ethical and philosophical questions which the burden of these particular kinds of history mean, the difficult times, the damage done, and the, 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 the kind of ethical and philosophical questions they raise for the present and the future. For all of the five individuals who feature in this book, life was a searing experience. It was, uh, they were lives lived against the grain, enduring forms of cultural and existential displacement, dislocation, exile of different kinds. And I think when we consider them today, we do so because they transmit to us from afar not only the kind of... There is a certain luminous particularity about these lives, but also the truth about the longings of a century, the 20th century. And in considering their lives now historically, I think we have to resist what is a very strong late 20th, early 20th, or 21st century tendency to gloss over the individual difficulty and defeat, looking for some kind of upbeat resolution or that dreadful word, closure. We may resist all of that in order to commemorate them honestly uh, to write as they lived, against the grain. But I think we do, it, we do, it, we do that as well because something about their experiences of defeat and survival, of their ability to face up to loss with dispassionate honesty, I didn't really talk about that, but it is true for all of them, um, a refusal to mythologise, it speaks very powerfully to the needs of the present moment. But above all, I think we have to resist it because this kind of history, doing this kind of history, is simply too important to admit admit of obfuscation. It's a democratic act. It's a public recognition of the huge cost of social change in the lives of those who paid it, and thus of the ethical as well as the practical limits of closure in every sense. Lives, real, real... lives also speak to us in a way that theory however sophisticated cannot simply cannot of the need to accept defeat and of the concomitant of sadness to make space for it and to carry on not as a burden but just to accept it to make space for it to carry on um, and in that way i think we craft an honest ending as the Michaelis did all those years ago um, in in berlin and to do that, if we can do that through... Not, I mean, we can't do it all through history, but if we can do it also through history, we achieve for ourselves and for our society a more psychologically mature modernity. Right. So when I, I'll go back to where I started this, or near to where I started, this idea of Spain... <coughs> on, uh, this is, well, it's a, it's a reprise of the Robert Kappa. March 1939, shot of a group of international... Brig- it's on the front of the war in its shadow. Uh, a group of international brigaders winding between two different areas of Le Barcares' internment camp in south-west France. Um, it used to be thought they were, <clears throat> they were moving between two camps, but actually Le Barcares got so big that, it, that it, there was Le Barcares one and Le Barcares two, and they were actually moving between the two. So Spain is, I think... It haunts us still, and I don't think this is some kind of um, abdication of a a more complicated historical reality. Um, But it it stands as a as a historical phenomenon as it did then, because it is, in a sense, this 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 kind of idea of um, the potential of what is not yet there. and therefore it remains a magic territory. And it also reminds us, I suppose, of the possibility of becoming, that the road doesn't exist, that we make it by walking, as a very famous Spanish poet said, um, that it hurts, uh, that it's necessary, that it's human, humane, well, not often not humane, but nevertheless a human imperative. So I offer these transnational and trans-everything lives uh, as some stories among the many possibles, to enliven our collective understanding of what it has meant and will again mean to be complex human beings whose lives, desires and calm are inexorably rent by major historical change.